Before their dream can come true, our three heroes must learn the real meaning of the Musketeer Creed. All for one, and one for all! Hello and welcome to History and Film. One for all and all for one. So, full disclosure, The Three Musketeers is one of my favorite novels, so while I love talking about it, I tend to just get mad at movie versions of it. I'm a big fan of Alexander Dumas in general. He wrote tons of historical fiction. Indeed, his Musketeers in many ways kind of forced gumps their way around the history of England and France of the 17th century. It's also easy to forget that though this was written in 1854, it depicts events from around 1625, so Dumas was farther removed from the time of the Musketeers than he was from 2019. The movie itself doesn't mention a year, but the opening line of the book says we begin in 1625, and that does line up pretty much with the ages of the historical characters we meet in the film. The main character of the Three Musketeers is not actually any of the Three Musketeers. It's the young D'Artagnan, who we meet training with his father in the Gascony region of southwestern France. The adventures of D'Artagnan, as written by Dumas, are all but entirely fictional. He did borrow the name D'Artagnan from an actual captain of the Musketeers, and both the character and the real man were given introduction to the Musketeers through family connections, but that's basically where the similarities end. And similar to last week with Shakespeare and Love, I'll speed through the invented plot fairly quick, but I do want to recognize the historical figures we meet along the way. As he arrives in Paris, D'Artagnan manages to get into four different fights, which he sees as just a great way to gain experience. The first is with a one-eyed agent of Cardinal Richelieu named Rochefort. He's played by Christopher Lee, who I completely did not recognize. The subsequent three fights are with Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, the titular Three Musketeers. They're all played by career actors whose names you may be less familiar with. Athos is Oliver Reed, who played Proximo, the gladiator trainer in Gladiator. Aramis is Richard Chamberlain, the lead in the Thornbirds miniseries. And Porthos didn't really stand out to me, but the actor had many credits on IMDb. Before his fight with Rochefort, we hear the man giving orders to the Lady de Winter to spy on the Duke of Buckingham for the Cardinal. I'll get to the Cardinal and Buckingham once we actually meet them, but everyone else here is fictional. No Rochefort, no Lady de Winter, and unfortunately no Athos, Porthos, or Aramis. At, at least as we get them in the film and novel. Like D'Artagnan, their names and titles may be borrowed, but the characters and their actions are pure invention. When he shows up to duel each of the Musketeers in order, the trio is impressed with the foolish enthusiasm of the young man, and just as they're about to take turns sparring with him, the Cardinal's guards show up. Dueling is apparently illegal, and they intend to break him up. The Musketeers, however, don't like rules, so a fight ensues. Let me interject real quick here to discuss the Musketeers in general. The King's Musketeers were established just three years earlier by King Louis XIII, who we'll meet a little later. Basically, they were just a small private military force on the King's behalf. They served as guards and fought in military expeditions in the King's name. They were, not surprisingly, despite a lack of firearms in these tales, armed with muskets. The musket was about 100 years old at this time and becoming more popular and beginning to see regular use in military campaigns. And there were obviously more than three of them, even in the movie here. The title just refers to the trio of friends who are the main focus and whom D'Artagnan befriends. 
The cardinal found his own company of soldiers soon after, so the men coming to arrest our musketeers in this scene would have been all relatively new on the job. And dueling was not allowed, though it was a hard practice to stop. The musketeers and D'Artagnan make it out unscathed and injure a few of the cardinal's men. As things calm down, D'Artagnan rents a room and hires a servant. He quickly falls in love with his landlord's wife, played by Raquel Welsh. She works as a trusted servant to the queen, and that will become very important to the plot. We cut to the Cardinal Richelieu, played by Charlton Heston. He's counseling King Louis XIII and warning him that the Duke of Buckingham is in Paris. The Cardinal knows about a romantic relationship between Buckingham and the French Queen. The King suspects it as well, but has no hard evidence. And, lacking that evidence, the Cardinal just can't straight up accuse her. And that's actually what the entire plot of the film centers around. D'Artagnan gets roped into protecting the Queen's secret affair through his new lover who works for her, while the Cardinal's agents, Rochefort and Lady de Winter, try to ensure that the affair is discovered and the Queen ruined. There is a small grain of truth to this tale, but it's not much. There may have been a flirtatious relationship between the Duke of Buckingham and the French Queen, Anne of Austria, but it's not believed to have gone beyond just flirting. The Queen tells Buckingham that they should end their affair because of the microscope they're both under. She gives him her necklace to keep in remembrance of her. The cardinal knows all this through his spies and suggests that the king should ask the queen to wear that same necklace to the ball or gala or whatever in two weeks. Then, when Buckingham is back in London, the Lady de Winter steals two of the diamonds from it. So, if by some miracle the queen does get it back in Paris, she'll have to explain the missing stones to the king. So, this becomes D'Artagnan's main quest of the movie, to get the queen's necklace back in time. When he arrives in London, Buckingham notices the missing diamonds and has his jeweler craft replacements ASAP. D'Artagnan gets it back to Paris at the last possible moment, and the cardinal's plan is thwarted the end. Again, none of this happened, so I'm leaving out huge chunks of side plots and action scenes. I want to focus our discussion on four people. The cardinal, Buckingham, and the French king and queen. Louis XIII is just two kings of France removed from Henry III, whom we met in Dangerous Beauty two weeks ago. And we're 53 years after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre from the week before that. The fighting between the Protestants and Catholics in France was still a significant issue. Louis became king at eight years old after his father, Henry IV, was assassinated by a Catholic fanatic. Henry was the one who had been a Protestant most of his life before converting for the good of the realm. And I should note that this movie only covers the first half of the Three Musketeers novel. A sequel was filmed at the same time and covers the second half. It sounds like they were originally supposed to be one film, but it didn't work out for whatever reason. In that second half, our Musketeers find themselves at the Siege of La Rochelle, where they help the king and the Catholic side score a decisive win against the Huguenots. Louis XIII, with his Catholic mother, was more pro-Catholic than his Huguenot father had been. And actually, let me backtrack some more. So the impending marriage from intolerance between the future Henry IV and Queen Margot did not last. The religious tensions were just too high, and after the couple had no children after 27 years, the marriage was annulled. Henry married Marie de Medici the following year, a distant cousin of his former mother-in-law with whom he had six children, the oldest of which became Louis XIII of our story today. During the beginning of his reign, Marie de Medici served as regent for her young son. When he was 16, Louis had grown tired of all the shenanigans of his mother and her Italian friends. He exiled her and executed some of her friends. Despite that bold move, Louis was in constant need of his advisors. 
Perhaps they even pushed for him to boot his mother. Especially as when one of his chief advisors died five years later, his mother returned from exile. Cardinal Richelieu, who himself had been on the outs with the king as a supporter of his mother's, helped to reconcile the two and quickly became the king's most trusted advisor. Together, Louis and Richelieu strengthened the crown and the French country as an entity against the nobility. In fact, this whole period in Europe will go a long way toward nations seeing themselves as they do today with a sense of national identity, politically, culturally, and geographically. I feel like before this, all of those distinctions were soft, borders were blurred, more areas were disputed, nobles were more likely to be somewhat autonomous. All this was during the very complicated Thirty Years' War, very roughly speaking, a conflict fueled by both religion and the rivalry between the French and the Holy Roman Empire. Under Louis, France developed a strong navy and sought peaceful relationships with the natives in the New World. When they were both 14 years old, Louis married the Spanish princess Anne of Austria. I know that sounds confusing. Her father was the king of Spain, but both he and his wife were descended from the Habsburg rulers of the Holy Roman Empire. It seems it may have been years before the marriage was consummated, and rumors persisted throughout Louis's life that he may have been homosexual. Not helping their relationship was their failure to conceive once they did begin their marital duties, and gave birth to four stillborn children by the king. And similar to what we see in The Three Musketeers, Anne and Richelieu did become rivals with her circle challenging his policies and him placing spies in her midst and things of that sort. About five years after the fictional events in our film here, Louis forced out most of the people in the Queen's court as punishment for her conspiring with his mother to get Richelieu booted. Then another five years after that, France and Spain went to war and Anne apparently passed French intel onto her brother who was now the King of Spain. After getting caught, she was under constant watch for the rest of the king's life. So again, while the events in the film were invented, the dynamics at play here are very much rooted in reality. Now, despite all that, finally, in 1638, when they were 37 years old, Anne gave birth to a son who lived, and a second son two years after that. It was Louis' hope to prevent Anne from serving as regent for their son in the event of his death, but despite his wishes, that's exactly what happened. Louis XIII died in 1643, and his four-year-old son was crowned Louis XIV. Louis XIV would go on to have the longest reign of any monarch in the history of Europe. Queen Elizabeth II today still needs another six years to catch him. He reigned so long, though he was just 76 when he died, he outlived his sons and grandsons, and his great-grandson succeeded him to the throne. The Duke of Buckingham, the Queen's lover in the movie, in reality, may very well have been the King of England's lover. He and James I were very close, and many, many accounts suggest that it wasn't strictly platonic. Though some suggest that's just our modern reading of the evidence. Many accounts also talk about just how good-looking the Duke was. George Villers was his given name. In fact, the Duke of Buckingham was a title created by the King for Villers. He advised the King and had a lot of pull politically, which turned some against him as he may have abused his privilege for personal gain. In the movie, they twice make a point to refer to one of the Duke's servants by name, Felton. There's seemingly no reason at all within the context of the movie to name this character, but in 1628, the Duke of Buckingham was assassinated in a pub by one John Felton, who wasn't a servant, but a lieutenant in the French army. Long story short, it seems to be that he blamed the unpopular Buckingham for misfortunes in his personal and professional life. In the novel and the sequel to this film, the servant Felton does kill Buckingham as well. Finally, the Cardinal Richelieu. 
As we've already seen, he wielded tremendous power as chief advisor to a king ready to listen to advisors. Richelieu was born Armand Jean du Plessis in 1585 in a family of the lesser nobility. He seems to have always been a strong student, initially training for the military before family ties to the church steered him towards the clergy. He became a bishop at such a young age, just 22, that he had to receive a special permission from the Pope even to take the post. Then, ironically, he first wound up in the service of the royal family working for Anne of Austria, his future rival. He rose by befriending the Queen Mother's main servant, who was later executed by the king when she was on the outs with her son. But by the time the Musketeers were established in 1622, Cardinal Richelieu was reinstated and was the king's most valuable advisor. It was Richelieu's strong stances that solidified the monarchy within France, and in turn, France within Europe. I mentioned the siege of La Rochelle. In many ways, that battle in 1627 was the culmination of Richelieu versus Buckingham. Charles I of England, James I died in 1625, went to war with France to aid the Protestant Huguenots. Richelieu himself was in command of the Catholic French troops, and Buckingham arrived with the English in opposition, but failed to turn the tide, and Richelieu was victorious. While the Three Musketeers story casts Richelieu as ambitious and conniving, historians are torn as to whether this was indeed the case, or he was just an avid patriot. And perhaps the most significant thing mentioned on his Wikipedia page is where it credits Richelieu with helping establish our modern system of international politics through promotion of strong national identities. It specifically cites the treaty which ended the Thirty Years' War as epitomizing Richelieu's philosophy. Richelieu died in 1642 at the age of 57 from various natural illnesses. Obviously, there are several versions of The Three Musketeers I could have chosen. The only other one worth highlighting is the 1993 Disney version. I didn't choose to go with it because it really butchers history at the end by having Louis XIII kill Cardinal Richelieu. But I do have to say, as a fan of the book, it probably does a better job of casting and capturing the tone of the books than any other version. I also always like to point out that the Three Tears novel is actually the first in a series by Dumas following our four heroes from today's film, the last part of which most people have heard of without realizing it involves the Three Musketeers, the Man in the Iron Mask. Elsewhere in the world around this time, the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam was established in 1625, the same year today's film was set. It will later become New York City. A species of cattle in the old world called aurochs went extinct around this time. During the French War with Spain, construction began on the Taj Mahal in India. And that's where we're headed next week, where we'll meet a prominent Hindu poet and spiritual leader in the 2012 film Tukaram. 